I am Pastor Stephen DeWitt. It's great to be with you this morning. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation 22? It's on page 1771 in the Pew Bibles. Um, unlike last week, I think I have tamed my Apple Watch, so Siri will not be interrupting us this week. <laughs> I apologize once again for that, um, although she does have some interesting things to say. So today is the last um, sermon in our Revelation series. We've done six Sundays preaching through the book of Revelation following the lectionary. And this morning we are looking at verses from the last chapter of Revelation. And we said at the very beginning that the purpose of the book of Revelation was to encourage these first century Christians, to encourage these believers and to give them hope for a future that they couldn't see because of all of the very, very difficult things that were going, around, going on around them. And especially these last couple of Sundays, looking at Revelation 21 and now 22, we get to see some of this vision of the future. We get to see the vision of this hope. We get to see what the hope looked like for these first century Christians and also what our hope looks like today. So let's have a read and see what this final chapter of Revelation has to show us. Uh, Revelation chapter 22, beginning at verse 1, and then we'll jump over to verse 12. Listen to God's word. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Then the angel said to me, that's John, the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to his servants, the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written on this scroll. Jump over to verse 12. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is the word of the Lord. So there are lots of surprising things that happen in the book of Revelation. Like, um, if you're reading the book of Revelation for the first time, you would never be able to guess what's coming next. Like, you'll watch a movie sometimes and you'll be like, oh, I know who's behind that door. That doesn't happen in Revelation. It's so strange, it's so, you might even say, absurd that you could never possibly guess what's going to happen. 
it could be that the most unexpected part of Revelation is that when heaven actually comes down out of the clouds, heaven turns out to be a city of all things. Heaven is a city. Do you, when you imagine in your mind's eye, do you think of heaven as a city? Like Shanghai, Nairobi, Mumbai, Cleveland? Do you think of heaven as a city? I would be really curious to know, actually, how you picture heaven, when you picture heaven. Because I think that most of us, when we picture heaven, we picture a place that kind of looks and feels a little bit like the Garden of Eden. I think that's maybe our natural disposition when we're imagining heaven. In fact, I think you can see this assumption about heaven that we have in the version of the Bible that we just read from this morning. If you use your pew Bibles, if you use the Bibles in front of you there, um, it kind of gives something away. Maybe you notice the heading at the beginning of chapter 22, that little title section. And it's, uh, the part that we read from says that it's called Eden Restored. Just a little FYI, those headings in the Bible, they're not actually part of the text. They're not actually part of the Bible. They're added by publishers. And sometimes it can be really, really helpful, the, the headings that they put in there. And I'm, I'm not against these headings. But other times, like this time, in my humble opinion, these headings can give us the wrong idea. Because the picture of heaven that we get in Revelation 22 is not of the Garden of Eden. That's not what comes down out of heaven. There are echoes back to the Garden of Eden. But the picture that we're given is not of a garden. It's of a city. Now, maybe you could call it a garden city. Fair enough. But it's a city. Like Mumbai. Like Shanghai. Like Nairobi. Like, of all places, Cleveland. It's a city. And that's really, really theologically significant. One of the things that we really value about our tradition, about the tradition of this congregation, the Reformed tradition, one of the things that we really value is that the whole of Scripture, the whole of redemptive history tells a singular story. So from the very, very first page of the Bible to the very, very last page of the Bible, even into the lives that we're living today, it tells a singular story. And that story, at its end, does not go back to its beginning. The story moves in one direction. The story progresses. It starts in the Garden of Eden, and it ends in a city. The story goes somewhere new. For as long as the church has existed, one of our greatest challenges has been allowing our story to advance. 
allowing our story to progress. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but church people tend to resist change. I know this is coming as a shock to you. Church people tend to resist change. We always have. It's kind of like in our blood. There's something about being religious. There's something about loving God. There's something about loving God's people. There's something about wanting the best for the world that makes us want to hang on to the way that things are, or even better, to the way that things were to the way that things used to be. We're always wanting to call ourselves back to something, back to something that feels old, back to something that feels familiar, back to, some, back to something that feels closer to what we imagine the past to be. Sometimes our resistance to change is for the best. That's true. But other times... I might even argue most times, it's not for the best. I think we have to be honest with ourselves. We, the church, we tend to look at our past with rose-colored glasses. We imagine that things were better when they used to be that certain way. And if only we could go back to the way things were, if only we could go back to when things were like this, back to when things were comfortable, back to those simpler times, back to that old-time religion. Really? Have you looked closely at what was going on with that old-time religion? A lot of it was really, really bad. We church people are so resistant to change. In fact, we're so resistant to change that when our eternal home, when the, when the heavenly city, when the holy city of Jerusalem is coming down out of the clouds, we point up to it and say, oh, the Garden of Eden, I've been there. No, you haven't. That's not what that is. That's not something from your past. That's something from your future. You haven't been there. You haven't experienced it yet. It's not something about the way life used to be. It's something about the way life is going to be. It's entirely new. There are echoes. There are echoes of the Garden of Eden, but that is not the Garden of Eden. It's something entirely new. Barbara Brown Taylor, as you know, is one of my favorite preachers. And in one of her sermons, she talks about how we are people who have been trained to look to our past in order to discover who we are. We are trained to look at our past in order to discover who we are. And we tend to define ourselves and to define one another according to our past. So she says, when you want to get to know someone, what do you ask them? You say, well, where are you from? Where are you from? And some of you are thinking, if someone asks me where I'm from and I tell them where I'm from, that's going to give them no idea of who I am. 
That's going to give them no sense of who I'm trying to become. But we ask, where are you from? Tell me about your past. Tell me about where you, where you came from. Let me place you in the category in which you were placed when you were conceived. And she says, you know, while those things are very significant, they're really only one part of our stories, right? Those are like our alpha stories. Those are the, those are the stories that we first learn about ourselves. Those are the stories that set our clocks ticking. They explain who we are, and they explain to some degree why we're here. Those stories magnetized our compasses on such a deep level that they continue to function as our default settings even now, but our alpha stories are only part of our stories. What about our omega stories? Right? What about the person you want to become? What about the person you imagine God imagines you to be? What about the person you are based on what the Holy Spirit is doing in you today? What, are, what about our Omega stories? I would contend that our Omega stories have as much, if not more, to do with the direction of our lives than our Alpha stories ever will. When the Apostle John, in Revelation 22, when he looks up and he sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, he sees something he has never seen before. It had echoes of Eden. It had echoes of things that registered deep in his bones. It had echoes of his alpha story. But what he was seeing that day was his omega story. He was seeing something totally brand new. And I would imagine that it made him nervous. Because it can be hard to do new things. It can be hard to go new places. You know what they say about old dogs and new tricks, right? John was in his 90s when he had this vision. So most of you have no excuse. He was in his 90s. Dogs don't get that old. And he had to learn this new trick. But the vision that God gave him in his final years was not one of moving backwards. It was not one of settling into the past. It was not one of an old-time religion. It was a vision of a new future. It was a vision of his Omega story. So what is our Omega story? A lot of the specifics we don't know because they haven't happened yet. But based on what God tells us in his word, there are a few things that we can count on when it comes to our Omega stories. Here are three of them. First of all, we can count on this. Our Omega story will take the same trajectory as our Alpha story. Here's what I mean by that. The future is unknown. We don't know what the rest of the day holds. We don't know what the rest of the year holds. We don't know how many more school shootings we're going to have to weep through. We don't know. 
but the truest things that have always been true will continue to be true. The creator God, who through his intra-Trinitarian love, loved this universe into being, will continue to love this universe. And his son Jesus, who invested his entire self into us, his entire self into this cosmos, will continue to be with us even when he's ascended to heaven. And the Holy Spirit, who we're going to hear more about next week, is one step ahead of us now, and he will be one step ahead of us tomorrow, and one step ahead of us the day after that, and one step ahead of us the day after that. And these things will never change. So as one generation gives way to the next and to the next and to the next, the same gospel will continue to thrive in new ways, in new cultures, in new societies, through new dynamics, with new technologies. The same gospel will continue to thrive. I am convinced that the little children who sat on these steps this morning, I am convinced that they will lead the church as faithfully as the generations who preceded them, if not more faithfully. Not because they're brilliant, though they are. Not because they're adorable, that will decrease. but because God, who has been our God, will be their God. And that trajectory will never change. It can't. Second, another thing that we can count on when it comes to our Omega story. Revelation 22 shows us that our Omega story, the Omega story of the church is not an individual story. It's a corporate story. It's a communal story. So back in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve made decisions in isolation. They made decisions for themselves, right? Based on their own individual choices. And boy, do we love choices. Based on their own individual choices, their own individual preferences, they made their own decisions for themselves, and it led to not individual consequences, but corporate consequences. This is the result of individual choices. There are corporate consequences. That's the Alpha story. The Omega story has God's people living in a city together. A city for all people and all nations living in community with each other. There is an interconnectedness in a city. There is an interdependence in a city. There's a kind of social ecosystem that develops in a city. And a city kind of becomes its own living organism, doesn't it? The focus of our Omega story is on the relationships that hold us together. Not our individual choices, but the focus is on the relationship that holds us together. So in our Omega story, we are not individuals. We are not just individuals standing before God, but we are an interdependent ecosystem where we are invested in our mutuality 
and in our relationships. And together we stand before God. So what do we do today to try to develop that kind of social ecosystem? To start, I think we're going to have to do a lot more listening And I can honestly say, so I've, I've been your pastor for 14 or 15 years. I have literally never been more proud of this congregation than I am right now because of the way that we went through and handled and discussed this human sexuality series where we invited a handful of people who had a spectrum of ideas and values and opinions and we welcomed them and we listened. Wow! And we did so graciously. And we did so beautifully. And I know you didn't come here today to get a pat on the back, but you're getting one. An interconnected, interdependent community is really good at listening. This is the Omega story, folks, that we are beginning to live into. If I didn't know any better, I'd say that the Spirit is alive in here. <laughs> Right? Number three. The third thing we can count on when it comes to our Omega story is this. We don't go up to heaven. Heaven comes down to us. Heaven comes to our neighborhood. Take a look around, because this is where God is going to be. God is investing his entire self, not in some place we've never been, but in a place we are today. So then the efforts that we make today matter into our eternity. Think about that. The relationships that you are uh, nurturing today matter into eternity. The physical environment that we conserve today matters into eternity. The art that you create, the machines that we design and maintain, the sick patients that we care for, the students that we teach, even the social studies tests that we take, boys and girls, matter into eternity. I know that last one's hard to believe, but it's true. The investments we make in this earth, in this place, in these relationships, in this life, matter into eternity because we're not beaming up to some heaven somewhere. Heaven is coming down to us. Our lives are not inconsequential. God is bringing heaven to earth. And no good thing on earth will be lost in heaven. No good thing on earth will be lost in heaven. I've shared this before, but it's one of these that's so good you have to share it more than once. Somebody once asked um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, 16th century guy, somebody once asked him, what would you do today, Martin, if you knew that Jesus was coming back tomorrow? And without missing a beat, he said, I would plant a tree. You think, plant a tree? 
Jesus is coming back tomorrow and you're going to plant a tree? Why? Well, for at least two reasons. For one, he's making the point that what we do today will matter into eternity. And there's something beautiful and God-glorifying about going about our tasks and fulfilling our calling and taking that social studies test and investing in that relationship. There's something beautiful and God-glorifying about these everyday normal things that we do, and they matter into eternity. But then also, Luther wanted to plant that tree because he wanted to see what God would transform that thing into, right? If a tree is beautiful in this earth, in this place, at this time, imagine when that tree is glorified. If you love your neighbor if you love your children, if you love your spouse today, imagine what that life, what that love will be like when that love is glorified. It boggles the mind. So Luther's like, I'm going to take this thing that's ordinary, yet beautiful, a tree, I'm going to plant it, and then I'm just going to have my mind blown tomorrow when Jesus comes back and it's a tree that I never could have imagined. No good thing on earth is lost in heaven. N.T. Wright says, We are not greasing the wheels of a machine that will one day be thrown off the edge of a cliff, thrown into the fire. No, no, no. We are contributing to the eternal city where we will live forever in harmony with God and with each other. Right now. Right now. The natural pull on churchy people, on religious people, is to pull us back to something that was, to pull us back to the way things were, to put on those rose-colored glasses, to look at our ugly, ugly history, not in every way ugly, but in many ways ugly history and say, eh, that wasn't so bad. No, no, no. Take the glasses off. God is calling us to something new. He's taking us to a place that we have never been He's going to show us trees that we planted that he turned into something we never could have imagined. Nothing good on earth is lost in heaven. Our generation will make progress and we will make mistakes. But every tree we plant on earth will be glorified in heaven. Jesus says, I am the Alpha, I am the Omega. Your story, my story, can only ever be on the insides of those bookends. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your incredible investment in this place. This place which sometimes feels so desperate and so sad and so broken. We pray, God, that we would be people who are looking forward to the future, people who are planting seeds in the present. We thank you for compelling us to a future that will be glorified in your grace. And now, Lord, as we take this bread and this cup, 
into ourselves. Let them be a deposit of what you will give us in full in the future. In your holy name we pray. Amen.